this is the one personal anecdote I will say before I put on my interviewing shoes. Uh, but first time I actually saw you perform was opening up for of Montreal at trees. I think it was in Dallas and, uh, had no clue who you guys were and you had semi long hair. And I think halfway through a song, it flipped the wrong way. And like the whole time I was like, this music's amazing, but like, I think his parts messed up and I don't think he can tell. So nice to meet you. I'm Jackson. Jackson, you're right. I, I couldn't tell. Good morning. Welcome to Don't Feed the Artists. I'm Jackson. I'm Dave. I'm Adam. And we have a guest with us this week. I'll let him introduce himself. Hi there, my name is Daniel Hart. I'm a performer and composer, general working musician, uh, lives in Altadena, California. And since we're prof professionals here, I won't mention that I did not tell Daniel, hey, you should probably introduce yourself. I'm not going to cue you up well. So <laughs> I apologize for that. <laughs> I think I think it came off with a real like uh, panache, like um, really felt endearing more than it would have if you had told me ahead of time. That's okay. that's good to hear. So uh, right now, uh, for anybody who doesn't know Daniel, uh, the three of us who are the normal podcast hosts, we're, we're rocking it in Texas. We're enjoying the nice warm rain. And Daniel, you're in right outside of L.A., right? Yeah, in northeast L.A. County, just outside the city limits in this, uh, in this city called Altadena that is in between the San Gabriel Mountains and Pasadena. And it did it did sprinkle a little bit today, but it's it's the uh, stereotype of Los Angeles or Southern California in that it's almost always perfect weather here. Just sunny and cool breezes and I mean that's that's the appeal. That's why people like it. it. Indeed indeed. Yes. That's one of the reasons I'm here. Yeah, and we'll touch on that a little bit later, but you're also not uh, a stranger to Dallas and Texas. But, uh, you know, you're the type of person who seems to have multiple projects going at once. But, you know, today we've got you here kind of in the buildup to uh, what, you know, at least the project that I'm aware of is uh, The Green Knight, which you did the score for. And that is what, your like eighth or ninth collaboration with the director, David Lowry? I count it up every once in a while so that I'll have it correct when I talk about it. Um, but I've forgotten since the last time. So yeah, eighth or ninth, that sounds about right. Um, yes, this is our newest film, The Green Knight. It was supposed to come out in May of 2020. And then the pandemic happened and A24, the studio releasing the film decided that they wanted to release it in theaters and they wanted to do that at a time when they thought people would actually go see it in theaters and so they held on to it they held on to it for over a year and now it's coming out in theaters on july 30th i'm so thrilled it's uh one of the best things i've ever been a part of by far it's such an epic tale beautifully made film i've read about your work schedule for Pete's Dragon and 
you said it was seven days a week, 11 to 12 hours a day. And you also wrote for 94-piece orchestra and 32-person choir. I wanted to know how much of that three-month period was spent formatting music and like do you use Sibelius or Finale to do that stuff? I um, was responsible for making orchestral demos to be played for the director, the producers, and various Disney executives so that they could be approved before we recorded them with an orchestra. Um, on any other kind of film except like a, a like a big budget Hollywood film, I would then, once things were approved, I would then be responsible or someone working for me would be responsible for um, writing out the sheet music for uh, whatever ensemble to record it. And uh, yes, I do use Sibelius to write out sheet music and I use Logic to make demos and do all my recording in Logic. Um, but in the case of D Disney and other like big budget Hollywood films, um, I don't do the sheet music. It then it goes on to a copyist, and their job is to take my uh, demos, my sessions, and my my MIDI, and um, convert that into sheet music. And then that sheet music goes on to the orchestrator, and then that orchestrator um, gussies it up, to, depending on how much orchestration I've already done. It could be a little or it could be a lot of work for the orchestrator. And then it comes back to me uh, for me to look at and listen to and approve before it goes mm -hmm. to the orchestra. And in the case of Pete's Dragon, um, because I was like an unknown quantity to Disney, we'd never worked together before. I'd never done a big film before. Um, I had to do a lot of stuff to prove myself that someone who had already done some bigger films might not have had to do. And so to that end, I think I had to really fill out the arrangements on those orchestral demos that I was playing for them in order to convince them that I would be capable of doing all the music for the film and that it would turn out the way that they wanted it to, which was like a big Disney adventure movie. And, and so... Um, the orchestrator definitely did a lot of really beautiful, important things, but for the most part, they were just adding a little bit of icing to the arrangements that I had made already. Yeah, I mean, I've only ever done, I think the biggest thing I've ever written for was like a big band when I was in jazz school. So it's like, I couldn't imagine ever writing that experience of not only jumping from, you know, the smaller budget films to such a large production and then having to write for an orchestra and things like that. Because I know you like to use a lot of different instruments in your music. I do. Uh, it just seems really daunting. So I was curious about that. It was daunting. It was daunting. <laughs> I, um, I, felt like, <laughs> I felt like I had no idea what I was doing half the time. Yeah. Um, but I feel that way now, too, anyway. So um, maybe that's just me. But then I also... Um, like I started playing violin when I was a little kid and I played in orchestra all the way up through school. And so I already had some sense of what to do in an orchestra from playing a bunch of, of the classical repertoire as a, as a teenager. Um, and then I learned a whole lot more when I was doing that 
movie. I'm definitely learning on the job um, what to do, what certain instruments uh, ranges are, stuff that I did not know. Right. How to, I think on that film, I told the orchestrator when we first started working together, I was like, hey, I didn't take orchestration classes in school. I didn't go to university. I didn't do music in, in university. And so I don't know uh, what a harp can and can't do as far as their pedal switching. Um, and so I, di I did not take the time to learn uh, how to write for harp until a couple years later. It's, it's important to be vulnerable with the people that you have to communicate, though. That's a good, a good example of that. I think some people might stifle the experience if they don't communicate that way with the people involved. The guy I was working with, this orchestrator, his name is Kevin Casca, and he's done a lot of really big movies, and um, he's exceptional, and I felt like I could really trust him. I was in good hands. He was... Um, he was really kind to me, but he was a, he was like a curmudgeon. He was like a, like a old, he felt to me like an old Hollywood composer trapped in a young man's body. <laughs> and, and so I knew that he would be really kind to me, but he would also, um, get it right. Like he would, be, he would be honest if it sucked. He would help make it not suck. So that was a film that was also done with David Lowry. And so you guys have obviously worked together a lot and you don't have to feel uh, bad because a, a responsible interviewer, uh, and here I am outing myself again, should have probably sat there and counted them up. But I think I wrote down at the beginning five. <laughs> and then every time I was working on my show notes for this, I just kept upping that. And I was like, I should probably count the, the short films. So you don't need to feel bad about that. But, you know, as you were saying, feeling kind of out of your water, uh, you know, or out of your element on such a big thing. Have the two of you as like a direct, he obviously likes working with similar um, people. It, have the two of you kind of like worked out a workflow or is it something kind of each project is different? Like is the Green Knight completely different than what you did on a ghost story? It's not completely different. We definitely have a shorthand now that makes it go faster. And um, we do have similar ways of communicating from film to film. But um, the musical needs of each film we've done have been different enough from each other that it's meant that there are certain aspects of it that um, feel like we're starting over each time we, we start on a new thing. And um, the one exception is probably a ghost story because on that one, we were making it ourselves. There was no studio involved. It was all um, financed by Dallas people in the beginning. And, and um, because of that, it was just me and David going back and forth about what we wanted, just the two of us, in terms of the music for the film. And that made it easier. And then the fact that that I probably feel uh, more in tune with the storytelling and the concept behind that film um, more than any other film I've ever worked on. And so it was really easy for me to find the right music, much easier for me to find the right music on that film 
than any other film that we've done. And so whereas most films, the music that ends up in the film is probably like the third or fourth draft of each of those pieces of music um, on average. On a ghost story, it was like 80% of the score was the first draft because everything that I sent, David really liked and um, and I really liked it too. And we, we just found it so easily. The Green Knight... Um, was the opposite of that. He was unhappy with the film that he was making, and so nothing felt quite right to him until we got uh, probably like five months into the scoring process. And he... Like, there were little little bits here and there where, where he liked the score but for the most part he was unhappy and and um he asked me to write a song for a scene instead of scoring it in a more film score or orchestral kind of way and and I did and that was the kickoff of actually finding the music that felt right for the film but there was so much music that came before that and then the film, the deadline for turning in the film got pushed back a couple months into like March of 2020. And so then David made more edits and then I had to write more music for it. And then the film's release got delayed entirely by the pandemic. And so then last summer, David made even more edits. And so I had to rewrite a bunch of music in in the fall. Um, so I've worked, I've written more music. The, the film itself has more music in it than any film I've ever worked on. It's like 87 minutes of music or something like that. <laughs> wow. And, um, and I wrote much more than that. Um, I think I wrote closer to 100. And then some scenes got cut. And then a couple scenes that originally had score ended up being silent. Um, or had they weren't silent. They had no music in them. Um, so it was just a, a huge mountain of music, and then several several par- chunks of it I had to re- keep rewriting over and over again. Um, so the the toughest one that we've had to do. The stuff that hits the cutting room floor. Are you cataloging it for future projects, and you know, making sure that you have maybe a Kickstarter of an idea for something that could possibly relate to it in the future, or do you just let it go? I often do that on projects. Um, and there are things that were written for one film or TV show that didn't work, and they'll work for another project later down the line. Um, but the score for The Green Knight is so unique compared to other things that I've done, just in terms of the instrumentation, and stylistically too, probably, because it's a medieval fantasy film, and it's the first medieval fantasy film I've done, and I don't have any other medieval fantasy films on the docket, but but even if I did, like, it's um, the score is is performed by like a, a string section, which is in every film I've done. There's a string section, but there's a string section, and then there's a recorder quartet. There's a seven-person uh, female choir. There's a nickel harpa, which is a medieval Swedish instrument, um, and then there's a prophet synth. Oh. Is that everything? Yeah. 
Please tell me you put a hurdy-gurdy in there. I should have put a hurdy-gurdy in. <laughs> um, yeah, and a couple other bells and bobs. It just meant, like, if I heard that anywhere else, I'd be like, well, that doesn't belong there, because that sounds like the Green Knight. It doesn't sound like other things. The new Nickelodeon show. <laughs> iCarly. The iCarly reunion scored by Daniel Hart. Daniel Hart. I think what we really, and Daniel, I'll do it so you don't have to. It sounds like we just need to go ahead and start the hashtag release the Daniel Hart cut. <laughs> no, I think, I think that most of the stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor deserves to be there. And I think also, like, some of the stuff that got cut, we never recorded it with the ensemble. It just it never made it past demo stage. Um, so it doesn't, it wouldn't even sound all that great, even if I did put it out there. This might be a little out of left field, but I don't think it is. So let's just go into it. Uh, there's a great interview with Paul Thomas Anderson where he said that working with someone, uh, working with Johnny Greenwood is a pretty um, non-traditional uh, route because uh, typically what Johnny Greenwood will do whenever he's scoring a film with him is instead of working for the scene or for the film specifically, what he'll end up doing is just writing songs and then just deliver them to Paul Thomas Anderson. And then he, Paul Thomas Anderson talks about like, okay, now got to work to this, uh, you know, music and like, okay, well this works well with this scene or we got to move this scene a little bit differently that way is, as a composer who it sounds like you're doing it typically the more traditional path of working with the filmmaker. Do you think that uh, a route like that would be enticing to you at all? It's uh, way easier for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've heard, I've heard Greenwood interviewed and he also says like he recognizes that um, this is not the way that most, that it's done most of the time. And that, he knows that he has it easy. His music is absolutely brilliant, so I I think their way of working definitely works. It's definitely a successful recipe for making brilliant films with brilliant scores. Um, I feel like I've not really come close to doing anything like that uh, yet. I think... There's an aspect of the storytelling that um, is important to me to have the music follow. Like, uh, maybe Paul Thomas Anderson can cover the parts that are missing from Mm -hmm. having music that's not meant for a specific moment. But I would guess that most directors cannot. So I don't know, I yeah, I don't know how I would feel about that. I think I would probably feel like something was missing from my process. It's funny because then you're talking about the struggle with this last movie and David saying, hey, can you just write a song for this section? And then true. that kind of sparks it, you know, that's where it really picks up. Do you think that's him knowing you as a composer and saying, well, let me just, let me just get Daniel to write a song? and this will get the wheels turning. Very likely. Very likely. He's, um, he's an expert director. He's, he's good at directing everyone. I, I, I don't 
know many people who who have that kind of skill across the board. Like some people are great at working with production designers and makeup artists and don't have the vocabulary um, when it comes to the music and then vice versa. But he knows it all. He knows like how to get the best performances out of actors and especially children, which I think is really difficult to yeah. get kids to like turn in um, really uh, thoughtful but uh, honest performances. Um, he's a wizard at it. And um, similarly, he knows, he really knows, he's not a musician himself, but he really knows how to work with me to get the best out of me. And yeah, I've never asked him, but uh, I would not have a hard time believing that he did that to shake me out of whatever thing I was doing that neither of us were happy with. Um, I will say that though, in that case where he did ask me to write a song, it was a song specifically written to the scene at hand. Right. Um, like topically addressing what was happening on screen and the correct length with like climaxes happening when something on screen was happening with the climax, you know? Yeah. Um, so it wasn't quite the Greenwood experience. Um, but it was, yeah, not, not, uh, not as so tied to the kind of underscoring that most movies have. Yeah. I, I was lucky in, in that way that he wanted that and, and let me do that. And I wrote several other songs for the film. It's not all songs, but there are like five or six songs in it way more than any other movie I've scored. You've also done some scoring work on television series. Uh, what's that that kind of process look like on TV versus um, you know scoring a feature length film or a documentary? Uh, so I've done like four or five TV shows now, and it's definitely been a little different on each one. But the the thing that they have in common that's different from films is this um, like really tight turnaround for what is usually a very large volume of work so most tv shows in the in the traditional model which is i think changing now because of streaming and because of netflix um, but in the traditional model most tv shows like network tv shows uh, you do an episode per week for however many weeks there are episodes so 10 episodes per season that's 10 weeks in a row one episode per week it's generally how it goes. Maybe you get one week off in the middle. Um, and the shows that I've done, um, well, I did I did Smilf on Showtime. That one did not have as much music as some of the others. But like I did the first season of The Exorcist when Fox turned The Exorcist into a TV show. And I did this show for um, CBS's streaming site, CBS All Access, called Strange Angel. That mm -hmm. was another hour-long drama. And in both of those cases, it was on average like 30 minutes, 30 to 35 minutes of music per episode. And that's, so that's, it's like making a Beatles album per week. A Beatles-length right. album per, per week, every week for 10 weeks. And that's hard. That's a real grind. Whereas on a film, you're like looking at you're looking at the long process, and and it's usually at least that amount of time, and probably in in off cases more like three or four months you have to do 
somewhere from 30 to 80 minutes of music. Would you say that you prefer working on feature films where you have that time to kind of refine stuff more than the, like you said, the grind of working on a, you know, series? Yeah, I do. I, I, I think I'm also just better at it. I think I'm, I'm better suited for it regardless of my preference, but yeah, my preference is to do films. I, I think that when you have to do that huge volume of work in that time, there are a couple couple of aspects of it that are hard for me to uh, to reconcile just because of who I am. One is that if you want to do it better, you have to you have to have a team. You have to hire a bunch of people to work with you, um, or you just have to be really fast. And in being fast, there's a certain level of detail that you can't attend to and and i think the quality can suffer or you end up with with music that's just kind of like wallpaper it's just there to to provide a little motor in the background or a little drone or or both um and some and there are several tv shows where that's all kind of all that they need right like yeah just pads if if the music was like really um, upfront and involved in a show like 24, I think it's going to do a disservice to the rest of what's going on. Cause all that show is doing is just like build, 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 build shows over. So you just, you need something that's way in the background and not doing much. Um, kind of adding a little bit of uh, tension from time to time. And giving it uh, propulsion, and uh, I I don't I don't really I don't that's not very satisfying work to me. Yeah, I think that's one of the more like long held kind of um, opinions maybe of like television scoring is it's you know used to be working on twenty two episodes for a season and it's just you you can't have the amount of input maybe you would have on an, something that's a smaller project. True. I think also, um, whenever the shift was sometime in the last 20 years, maybe 25 years, um, so the studios decided to stop, um, uh, paying for orchestras for their shows. Mm-hmm. So, um, the A team, that's not a really great show. <laughs> it was one of my favorite shows as a kid, but in terms of, the quality of like nuanced storytelling. The A team is not where you're gonna go if you're looking for like Shakespeare on television. Um, but there was an orchestra playing the score for for the A team for every episode every week. That's crazy. Hard to imagine that happening nowadays. It barely it barely happens. Seth MacFarlane makes it happen for all of his shows. He insists on it, but I don't know of anyone else. Yeah, I think the closest way you could even get to that now would be some very like high prestige like hbo level kind of miniseries but even then that's it's very expensive to do that so it's so expensive and they're not willing to spend the money but i think also um there's been a general shift in in how uh, executives and composers and audiences see uh television music in 2021 and and most of them don't see it 
Um, most of them don't see it being um, orchestral. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like there's some really fantastic non-orchestral scores being made all the time. But um, that's the stuff that excites me the most, generally speaking. So this is probably a question more for me than it is for our listeners, but I have to ask it. As a composer, who's your Elvis? Do you look at people like John Williams just like in awe, or are you just like, you know, the rest of us where you're just like, no, you know, I, the traditional idols uh, musically? My, um, my favorite scores uh, are Do the Right Thing by Bill Lee. Spike Lee's father, and um, North by Northwest by Bernard Herrmann. I don't think there's another one that's like a constant go-to, but there are a lot. Like, like Pee Wee Herman? <laughs> <laughs> I really do like Pee Wee Herman. Pee Wee Herman is one of the first scores that I really um, connected to as a kid where where I noticed the music in the movie. And I was like, oh, the music's cool. It's doing something. <laughs> so, yeah, Pee Wee Herman, definitely from my childhood. But I haven't, I I think I listened to it once last year when I, I went through all the Elfman stuff. And I was, I was like going composer by composer and listening to a, a, a film score per day, like first thing, um, doing stretches in the morning, I'd listen to a, a score. Um, but other than that, I haven't listened to it a lot over the years. But I feel like, um, um, I have this list here. Oh, like yeah, Back to the Future probably. Mm. It's my other favorite, and I listen to that, and I think, Jesus, man, how do you even m- make that happen? That's just, uh, it's truly remarkable. And yeah, John Williams. John Williams is a uh, is the pinnacle, ab- absolutely. But but when I think about my absolute favorites, um. They're they're um, the the stuff that I that I just said. I listen to um, Under the Skin a lot. Mika Levy's score for Under the Skin in the past couple of years, partly because I love it, but also partly because I was working on multiple projects in a row where they used Under the Skin as the temp music for various scenes. So so I had to listen to it as a reference. Uh, that's what they wanted for their scene, um, which is a blessing and a curse. Yeah, I was going to ask, what's your take on temp music? I don't like it. <laughs> I don't think many people do. There's a history of some directors just where you, as a composer, might end up going, why don't you just get that person? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> right, or or you wind up using the, the music you had as the temp tracks. I mean, that kind of like famously happened with Stanley Kubrick and some of his, his works where... They just went, well, we'll just do that then. We don't have to have any composer. But that's not, uh, yeah. you know, generally that's a weird decision to make, I think. It's kind of like someone, you're about to date someone and they go, you should act like my ex a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I never thought of it like that, but that's a pretty, that's a good metaphor. I, um, or a good analogy. Um, I, uh, I think that Kubrick does it in a way that very few people have been able to do it. Like he, 
he uses the classical music as if it was a score written for him. And so he may be doing something what, like PTA is doing where he um, gets let the music guide the scene in, in those cases. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't like it. It can be sometimes it's the only way to communicate. Like if a, if a director doesn't have uh, a kind of musical vocabulary, it can be the only way for them to communicate what they have in mind. And so it can be a, it can be a helpful reference, um, but I think more often than not, it gets lodged in people's brains, and then they can't let go of it. And even if they really want you to make new music for the scene that you're working on, they've watched it in the edit so many times with um, the temp music in it that when you don't when the French horn doesn't ascend at one minute and 32 seconds then there's something in their brains like wait something's missing like even if they don't want it to be something will feel like that to them and and it happens to me too like if i listen to the temp music too much and i'll be like wait a minute or like um if i'm working on demos from from my band and then we actually go and record stuff and then we get into mixing the actual stuff that we recorded there are times where i'm like wait a minute it doesn't sound like the demo and i it's not because the demo sounds great. It's just because I listened to it so many damn times when I was... Is is that how the Star Spangled Banner ended up on 15 people? <laughs> no, that was intentional. That was intentional. I wanted to use the <laughs> No, I know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, by the way, because I've, 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 I've heard you mention, like, uh, you know, early 2000s hip-hop, Timbaland, and all those people where it in a strange way, I kind of thought of that when I heard that track. It's like, this almost seems like a sample, but it's, it's done with all these wonderful, all this wonderful orchestration. Do you know that song, uh, Trophies by Drake? No, not really. It's a, it's one of his singles from the, oh, I don't know, 2010, 2011, um, time period. And it's got this, um, repeating French horn riff that it's not the Star Spangled Banner, but it feels like in the same world as, as what I did. I think that was probably, like, I heard that. And I was like, oh, I want to make something like that. It's such a good sample. It sounds so powerful. And that's probably why I did what I did. <laughs> so if anybody hasn't, uh, you know, discover we're talking about dark rooms at this point, which I'm sure most of our Dallas listeners already know about uh, your non-score related work, uh, your band dark rooms. And uh, we're talking about the spillover EP, which came out at the beginning of this year. I think it was like the first release that I saw that I was like, Oh cool. There's something to start off this year. This EP discusses like some very, you know, poignant themes and you know i don't know if you specifically want to touch on them but it's just a lot of stuff that our society especially america is dealing with and like specifically the opening track elijah to me the way i interpret it it's obviously talking about elijah mclean and it very much uh, feels like you seeing this clear line between you know it seems like you're drawing a parallel to your own life to his and unfortunately, just because of the color of his skin, he's no longer here. He faced the most extreme prejudice. Is that an accurate assumption? He plays the violin. He's a total softy 
from the very little that I know about him from social media and from what he said to the cops when they were killing him, when they were murdering him. Um, yeah, I, I definitely feel like I can uh, empathize with him. Like our experiences could have been a lot, our life experiences could have been a lot closer. It's yeah, very I, frustrating. It's very frustrating. It's very frustrating. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Um, so I wrote a song. I um, the lyrics went through some some uh, revisions because I think there, there's a line in there where it's like Elijah who wouldn't hurt a fly, um, who should still be alive. Um, I think that was in there more often in the first version. Elijah who wouldn't hurt a fly. And a friend of mine, a non-white friend of mine, was like, hey, you should not have that line in there so much because it makes it seem like he shouldn't have been killed because he was a nice guy or because he was kind, whereas the truth is that nobody should be killed <laughs> for, right. for being black. Um and so I, I, um, I revised the lyrics to be more representative of other aspects of who he was from the little that I knew about him um, and not to make it so much about um, that line. And I took that line from stuff that he had said when the cops were, were killing him. But yeah, even now, we're talking about it now, and it's like there's a pit in my stomach Mm-hmm. I haven't thought about it in a while. I haven't thought about the song in a while. Um, Way to go, Jackson. <laughs> well, it's it's important to, you know, it's a great song, but it also has this really important message. And then, you know, it's important to note that, you know, the four of us talking right now, we're white men. So it, bunch of white it's, dudes, it's, yeah. It's, it, yeah, it's really, it's this very difficult position that we all benefit, benefit from this uh, system. And how can we use that uh, privilege to, uh, you know, bring forth the change that we need? So it just wanted to bring up the song because it, at the end, of, you know, if I knew nothing about that instance, um, I really, it, the song in an isolated world, is it's, it's beautiful on its own. And it has some amazing editing, as most uh, Dark Rooms does. And there's like this clear distinction uh, between your score work and um, dark rooms, and I'm just curious. Whenever you're working on something that's more specific on this, which is either be more personal uh, or something you can't really explore as easily in a score-related work, do you have to be in a different, you know, space, either like literally or figuratively, to be able to write music for dark rooms as opposed to writing something for the Green Knight? I do all of my work in my in my home studio um, when I'm writing stuff, whether it's for films or for dark rooms. So the, the room I'm in right now, um, that's where I do all my work. So um, literally, uh, no, there's no difference in the space. Um, but in in every other way, yes, there's a difference for me writing stuff for dark rooms than there is for um, working on films or TV shows or other media. It, it, with dark rooms, I I'm the director. I'm in charge. I get to choose whatever I want to do, and because making music digitally is relatively cheap in 2021, and you can make 
just about any kind of instrument or sound you want to. I also have an entire world's palette of sounds to choose from to make that music too. Um, so it feels like, like, because I could do anything, um, I have to set rules for myself, like the kinds mm. of rules that I would have if someone else was in charge. Um, otherwise, it won't ever go. I'll never finish. Like, I could just keep to- t- toying with it forever. Um, so, so I've set some parameters. Like um, this EP that we put out in, in February is the first of three EPs that we're planning to release this year. We're mixing the second EP right now. And um, and I've par- partly written the third one. They're all orchestral or semi-orchestral. And um, as far as a template, I based it on Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, um, the full title of which is Rite of Spring, Scenes from Pagan Russia. And so in my mind, this is like Rite of Winter, scenes from pagan America. I mean, none of it's, it's not called that, but for my own, like, uh, guidelines for my own framework, that's, that's what it is. And that has guided a lot of the subject matter of the songs is all about what it means to be an American in 2021, what it means to be a white dude American in 2021, more specifically, what my family is, where we came from, who we were, um, I have a very extensive family tree that was created by my great aunt um, like 50 years ago when she was trying to get into the Daughters of the American Revolution. And to get into that organization, you have to be able to prove that someone in your family uh, fought in the American Revolution or was aided somehow, like was a nurse or um, carried goods or a messenger or something. Um, So she, she dug all the way back. Um, into, I have this very extensive family tree. I think most people in this country don't have that. Um, and uh, I'm related to William McKinley, who was president of the United States at the turn of the 20th century, who was also assassinated and who was in charge when a lot of big imperialist, United States imperialist things happened. Like, Hawaii was annexed under his watch. The Spanish-American War happened under his watch, which meant that Guam became a territory of the U.S. while he was the president. And the Philippines and Cuba were freed from Spanish control and then started this really, like, weird relationship with the United States. And so I, I like, wonder what to make of that. And there's a song about that on this second EP that we're mixing right now. Um, So this is the framework that I'm using for this album, just to give myself something to uh, rein in all the world of possibilities that could be created in music in, in 2021. Any expected time when we could get to hear that second release? I think we're releasing it in September. Um, we're mixing right now, but then um, we're making a couple of music videos for a couple of the songs. And uh, one of them is uh, animated, so it's gonna take a little longer. By the way, the 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 music video for sure, everything is fine. I I never seen that video until today, and I was just I listened to that song and know it very well. And then I watched the music video. And I was like, this apartment. I don't know how much you have had to do with that music video, but I was like, 
this apartment looks like it's at the Adam Hatz lofts. And I was like, holy shit, I, that's my exact apartment that I lived in for like a year. So that was like, blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's why we chose it, Jackson. <laughs> oh, I'm really happy. <laughs> Wait till you see the next video. <laughs> the interview is full circle. Yeah, that's amazing. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'll return the favor, <laughs> Daniel. Your hair part looks great right now. Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> oh, finally. Woo! So uh, you have toured extensively over your career. And just to name drop a few, because I know you probably won't do it uh, since you have been very generous and humble during this whole experience. Uh, but you have uh, worked with St. Vincent, Polyphonic Spree, and then also Dark Rooms. It, did I read somewhere that... Uh, did you uh, tour with Broken Social Scene? I think you said you've played half a dozen shows with them or something like that, but you were a fan first. That's all true. It was like one third of a tour. <laughs> there was a section, it's like an East Coast section of their tour in ooh, like 2011 or maybe it was 2012, where I was I was in between other tours and I was free and I was there and... Um, I love them, and it was super fun. It's interesting if you look at your career. Uh, it feels like your touring career is like your college years, and now you're in your like adulthood of uh, musicianship, uh, working with your score work. So, I guess my I, I, it's a two part question, but uh, the first part is, you know, is touring something that you enjoy, or was it something that, like, just as a musician who wanted to be successful, you felt like, ah, oh, this is the way to do it? I really intensely miss it. The last Dark Rooms tour was, was in 2018. We finished an album cycle at the end of 2018. And then I was going to spend 2019 and part of 2020 making a new album. And then I got... Um, totally slammed with film and TV stuff in 2019. And then in 2020, the pandemic took the wind out of all the sails, you know? So I, I started working on the next album like halfway through 2020, way behind my personal schedule that I had set. Um, but I would, I like, I would love for had, had everything gone the way I wanted it to, we would have, been on tour this year in some, in some capacity for, for the new material. Um, but I, that's not going to happen because I'm not going to, we're not going to do any shows. I don't think until, well, we're not going to do them until it's safer, but we're also not going to do them until, until we finished all three EPs, I think. Um, cause that's like the, that we're going to release it as an album at the very end. Like right, right now we're just releasing it digitally. We'll release it physically when, compile all the three EPs and, and release it as an album. And so th after that would be the time in my mind when we would want to do our touring. Um, but I love touring so much. It was, it was my career for about five years, um, almost five years. Yeah. I think you said you spent five years trying to tour and then five years actually doing it. That's right. And then, and then it was like another four years where I was doing it maybe half the time and then half the time was scoring and half the time was touring. And, um, now it's more like 80% scoring, 20% touring. Um, 
except for the past couple of years where there's been no touring at all. But um, yes, I envision myself going back to touring. I always wanted to be in a band. I always saw myself trying to be in a successful band, like a band that would make enough money that I could pay my bills and that would be my job. That's what I wanted to do. I never planned to do film scoring. Um, it kind of fell in my lap and uh, I tried it because it sounded like fun. And I think because of who I am and the training that I've had and the stuff that I studied in school, um, I'm suited, I'm well suited for it. Um, so, so it seems to like make sense for me to be doing this. Um, but it wasn't my number one passion when I started doing music. Uh, live performance has like the most special place in my heart. So since you enjoy touring, uh, is there, we used to ask people, uh, tour stories, uh, one good and one bad. Do you have any good stories you'd be willing to share? And you can redact names if you have to. Or Jackson can add a beep. <laughs> um, one good and, and one bad. Let me just tell you this dream that I had on tour. Because I think it's good and bad. I like this. And that might just cover it. I was on tour in 2007 with this guy, John Vanderslice. John Vanderslice, um, for those who are not familiar with his work, was a San Francisco-based indie pop singer-songwriter who was most active from like the early 2000s through 2015, 2016. Um, but he's still making records and playing shows. He is perhaps better known as the founder and owner of the San Francisco recording studio Tiny Telephone, where a lot of really important indie rock albums were made over the last 20 years. And uh, I played in his band uh, just for a little while, like 2007 or 2009. I did probably four, five, yeah, like four U.S. tours with him. And uh, there were four of us in the band. It was me, John Vanderslice, um, this guy D Dave Douglas on drums, uh, who was a UNT guy, mm -hmm. and um, Ian Bjornstad was on uh, keyboards and guitar. And I played bass and violin and sang harmonies in, in the band. And... When I was not playing the bass, the bass was usually covered by Ian, and he was covering uh, bass on a Moog Source. It's a 80s Moog synthesizer um, with a bright blue cover um, that makes some really beautiful, weird sounds. And our sound engineer slash tour manager for those tours um, was another Denton guy, uh, Dave Willingham, who... Um, used to be one of the owners of um, Echo Lab, but has since, has since moved on. Um, so Dave Willingham was doing sound and, run, and running the tour, and then me, John, Dave, and Ian were the band. We were playing like uh, 300 to 500 person clubs most nights. Um, really fun. John's an incredible entertainer. 
really connects with his fans. We would end most shows um, doing an acoustic mini set of three or four songs in the audience with the audience around us doing like a sing-along. Um, like a really good time. One of, one of the things that I treasure most about when I was touring a lot um, were the tours that I did with John. And we were like halfway through the Midwest on maybe the second or third tour in two, in 2007, end of 2007. And I, I, I'm having this dream. And in the dream, I am walking up to this giant city with a big downtown, like, like a New York City kind of um, skyline. Uh, but it's all gray, like it's in profile or something, or shadows. And, and I, I'm walking down this abandoned highway. And there are these checkpoints with these faceless gray soldiers in, in uniform uh, manning them. And I walk up to one of the checkpoints and they let me right through, no problem, super easy. And as soon as I make it through the checkpoint, I turn around and I look behind me and then I suddenly realize the guards are not there to keep people out. They're oh. there to keep people from escaping. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this is not, this is not good. And I keep walking down the abandoned highway and then I get to uh, my high school and um, I'm in the dream. I'm an adult like I I'm see I'm seeing myself as as who I was at the time um, in, my, in my 30s. And and uh, and I'm still in high school anyway. And and I run into one one of my best friends, um, this woman, Krithi. She's there, too, even though she's several years younger than me. We would never have been in high school together, but it's also the adult version of her. And we run into each other in the hallway. It's uh, in between classes. Like, I got there late or something. It's already in between classes. And so it's just students everywhere um, transitioning from one class to the, to the next. And I find uh, Krithi, and I look at her. And I'm like, hey, um, something's not right. This doesn't feel right. And she says, I know. It doesn't feel right. And then the principal's voice comes on over the PA system. And he says, all students report to the auditorium immediately. All students report to the auditorium immediately. And we look at each other and we're like, bad news. <laughs> bad situation. But we go. And all the students go into the auditorium. And then once all the students are in the auditorium, I turn around and it's more of those faceless gray uniformed soldiers. And they shut the doors behind us and they bar them. So we can't get out. And it's one of those auditoriums where you enter at the top and then it's seats that uh, cascade down and then the stage is at the bottom. And uh, we enter at the top and then I look down at the stage and then I see why I felt like it was a bad situation and why they barred the door so that we couldn't get out. And that's because on the stage were like 30 giant mechanical spiders robot spiders of varying sizes they were like mechanical baby spiders but the babies are like the size of a, a warthog you know and and then the the adult mechanical spiders are like the size of uh like three grizzly grizzly bears huge, <laughs> huge terrifying and as soon as all the students are in and they can't get out the spiders start crawling up 
all the chairs in the in the audience like trying to get to the students and so every it's total mayhem total chaos everybody starts running in every direction trying to get away from these spiders and i i lose sight of my friend kathia can't can't find her don't know where she went um and i decide that the best uh way to go is directly towards the spiders so i run into the into the chairs and sure enough like the spiders all like dispersed trying to chase down other people and so I got a clear path down to the front and I get down to near the front to where the stage is in this auditorium and over on the side like there is in some auditoriums that's where the little sound booth is and I go up to the sound booth and Dave Willingham the sound guy from John Vandersize's band is in the sound booth he's there and he's running sound for this non-existent show with the mechanical spiders in the auditorium. And I, I go up to him, I say, Dave, what the hell is happening? And he turns to me, he's like, I don't know, man, but it's not good. <laughs> and I'm like, what, can we stop this? He's like, I don't know, man, but I think that guy has something to do with it. And he points back behind me into the, into the audience. And I turn around and there's one of those rows where like the chairs have been removed and there's just one really long table in its place. And at the table, there's a guy with a computer monitor in front of him and a keyboard, but it's not a computer keyboard. The keyboard is a Moog source. <laughs> and this guy is playing the Moog source. And so I start running towards him. And as I get closer, I realize like his playing of the Moog source is completely uh, uh, connected with the movements of the spiders. So I'm like, oh, this guy is controlling these fucking spiders. I got to stop this guy. And then we stop the whole problem. And I, as, as I get closer, I'm like, is that Dick Cheney? <laughs> and Dick Cheney is sitting in the middle of this auditorium playing a Moog source, controlling mechanical spiders to kill all the high school students and all my friends. And uh, the dream ends when I'm like almost up to, up to him. Like I'm running oh. up to him and I never get to him. And then the dream's over. Bravo. If any of our listeners is an animator and wants to animate that, I mean, I'll commission you myself. Just reach out to me. That was incredible. That's, so, that's a subconscious dream about you being worried about losing your gig. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're on the stage staring at that Moog, just like, you son of a bitch, I know what's going to happen. <laughs> I play the bass. Yeah. You can't take my job, Moog Source. Exactly. exactly. Dick Cheney's never going to be in this band. <laughs> Holy shit. Well, so let's, uh, we got one more segment of the show. It's just what we're listening to. And uh, we'll go first and we'll let you go uh, last, Daniel, so you can think about what you're listening to. Um, right now, this week, uh, two albums came out that I've been excited about. Uh, Tristan, I believe she lives in Nashville, but uh, this is her fourth album, uh, Aquatic Flowers. It's just a, Nashville singer-songwriter Dave and Adam. I think we saw her at South by and have loved her ever since. Yep. And then on top of that, uh, Japanese Breakfast released uh, a new album, Jubilee, which I've only gotten to listen to some of it. So next week, that's going to be probably all that I've been listening to. Dave, what have you been listening to? Uh, for some reason or other, I jumped back into listening to Most Def's record, Black on Both Sides, from 1999, and um, Dark Rooms. thanks yeah i only have one that i'm going to mention i've been working a lot on some stuff that is just the kind of music i listen to during that work is uh scores and stuff 
And I uh, finally listened to the score for Minari, um, which I still haven't watched, but the score is awesome. I totally understand how it was one of the one of the five, I guess, nominated for best score. And uh, now I feel like I really need to watch the movie. Yeah, I, I have not seen the movie either. But Emil, who did the score, is incredible. I, I'm in awe of his work. I think he's one of the most exciting young composers doing film stuff today. What have you been listening to, Daniel? Yeah, uh, there's this guy, Kiefer, who does instrumental hip-hop, or mostly instrumental hip-hop, um, who has a new-ish album, a 2021 album called Between Days. That's great. And uh, I went back and listened to Prefuse 73's One Word Extinguisher from 2003 that I had not listened to in a long time. I listened to Vertigo, the, the soundtrack from Vertigo this week, Bernard Herman. And uh, Flying Lotus's Flamagra from 2020. All right, with that, we'll wrap up the show. Daniel, thank you very much for being on. Uh, the Green Knight is out July 30th of this year. Sounds like you'll be able to go see it in theaters. And uh, on top of that, sounds like Dark Rooms has stuff uh, in store for us for the rest of the year. Uh, where's the best place that you'd like people to you know, listen to Dark Rooms, be it streaming or Bandcamp? Yeah, Bandcamp's our favorite because they treat the artists better than just about anybody else. Yeah, darkroomsmusic.bandcamp.com. All right, and with that, uh, Dave, can you take us out? Any? Uh, if you are still listening, you can follow us on any of the major streaming platforms. We're also on Spotify, <laughs> which is one of the more main ones. Um, yeah, that's it for today, and fuck off. Get me a towel. Oh. <laughs> I wanted Adam to do it. Oh, I'm sorry. There's no way. I couldn't tell who you were pointing to. For the, you know. <laughs> I guess, yeah, going like this yeah. doesn't really prompt anything. <laughs> I was worried Daniel thought I was telling him to fuck off. No. <laughs>